This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. everyone, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking to Dr. Felix Drexler. He's calling in from Berlin. Dr. Drexler is an expert in virus discovery and viral ecology at Charité, which is a teaching hospital in Germany. We'll be discussing the ways the dengue infection might protect against Zika syndrome. Welcome, Dr. Drexler. Hi. Hi, Sarah. Nice to meet you. So, okay, let's get started. Uh, Zika gained international attention a couple of years ago, but we haven't heard much about it since the end of the 2015-16 outbreak. What happened? Is Zika still a problem? Yeah, yes, Sarah, I would, I would say it is. And um, it's actually quite a complex scenario, and we don't really fully understand what happened. Um, but a few things are for sure, and one is that Zika has not gone away simply. We still see cases sporadically from several Latin American countries, um, but of course at a, at a much, much, much lower magnitude compared to the um, epitome of the outbreak from 15-16. From um, but we're still seeing cases, and we don't really know for sure why the case numbers, at least of the reported cases, went down so dramatically. We of course have a, f a few. Um, we have a few hypotheses, and um, Zika exists as it's like one serotype. You can have it probably. You can have it once in your life that we don't know, but for a given time, right? Until maybe your immune responses wane sufficiently for you to become infected again, but we don't know that. So we probably we can assume that uh, in those areas that were heavily infected by the Zika outbreak in Brazil that so many people got infected so quickly that the population community protective immunity was so so strong that there was such a large proportion of the population immune to Zika um, that um, there were not uh, the, the number of susceptible individuals dropped too much and the virus couldn't sustain transmission chains. And probably we can assume that at least in several areas, and not many have been studied, but um, we did a study from, from Salvador, which is in northeastern Brazil. It's a big city, uh, the third biggest of Brazil, which has about 3 million inhabitants. And we showed that within one year, from 2015 to 16, about 60-70% of the population got infected by Zika. So this is too much for the virus to maintain itself in that population. And in this population, it is probably gone for quite some time. Now, whether this applies to all of Latin America, we don't know. Does Zika virus infection always lead to birth defects in women's babies? No, certainly not. Um, I think replying to this is it's good to 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 say where we started because it's such a great, such an important question. And when 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 the Zika outbreak started, um, the estimates of how frequent a mother's baby or fetus would, have, would be damaged um, upon maternal infection during pregnancy varied between, like, say, 0.5 and 40%. Mm -hmm. And this, of course, is not, not really helpful. By now, there's such a great body of data from several excellent studies, and we can say that we are in the range of maybe one or a few percents of defects. But it's important to note, and people sometimes get that wrong, that we are, when we say birth defects, we don't just say microcephaly, which is like the most dramatic and most visible symptom um, of a congenital Zika infection. Um, 
So we are probably seeing much more than just microcephaly. We have, we have to consider hearing impairment in infected kids. And so there's still a lot to learn from those kids that got infected and that are growing older so that we are actually still to learn all of the possible sequelae of a congenital Zika infection. But it's definitely much, much less than 40%. So that's good. That is good news. And not uh, what I think, as you said, as the general perception. I think people thought if you got Zika, you had a baby with birth defects. Yeah, precisely. I mean, we always knew it wasn't going to be that way. It's just that the, 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 the symptom was so striking. This is the one thing you could real, that people realized that something was going on in Brazil. And it took a long time because this may sound trivial, but if you don't know what is a normal head circumference in a baby or in a, sorry, in a given population, right? And Brazil has a lot of genetic admixture. Um, the way so the Brazilian background is genetic background is very heterogeneous, mm-hmm. and and so what is a normal baby's head size in such a population? And it took an incredible amount of time until first we realized that something was going on, and then that we understood how to die. That what is too small? So when is the baby's head too small? That took a, a long time and a lot of work from from clinicians, gynecologists, pediatricians an epidemiologist. So um, dengue and Zika are both considered flaviviruses. What does this mean and how are they similar? Yeah, uh, they are. Yeah, flaviviruses are called flaviviruses. It comes from Latin, flavus, which means yellow. This is because the prototype, spe- the prototype species is the yellow fever virus, which is a virus that affects the liver of those that are infected. And um, if, if, you, if your liver is not working well, you can get jaundice. And since uh, these people had jaundice, which presents as sort of a yellowish skin color and a yellowish color of your sclera, so your eyes, so um, it was sort of such a pathognomonic feature that all these viruses were then called flaviviruses. And as you say, dengue and Zika are both flaviviruses, so they share a lot of a lot of different features. Actually, they have a very similar genome structure and length. So the nucleic acid that composes the viral genome is very similar. Uh, the structure is similar, and that is important because if the structure of the viral proteins, the the viral capsid, is similar, it also translates into um, something you you can call antigenicity. So it means that these structures are so related that. Um, you can have, um, for example, antibodies that are elicited by an infection with such a virus interact with another virus just because it's structurally so similar. With dengue, sometimes the second time someone gets infected, the illness is more severe than the first time. This seems counterintuitive to me. Why would this be? Um, basically, we think, and there's now good evidence supporting this hypothesis, that um, this is due to immune enhancement, and more particularly, a process called antibody-dependent enhancement. And this theory was put in place by Scott Halstead in, I think, in the 70s. And and a lot of people didn't agree at that time, and uh, uh, some people still don't agree, but there's very important evidence from large longitudinal studies that support um, the hypothesis that indeed you may have immune enhancement. And in in principle, this means or the, the most important feature of antibody-dependent enhancement describes a process where you have dengue once, 
and your body reacts to the infection by producing, by mounting an immune response, including the production of antibodies that bind to the virus and kill it. Simply said. And um, so this antibody is still in, 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 in a person's blood after, it ha after the dengue infection is cleared, right? And then dengue, as you said, you can have it more than once because dengue exists differently from Zika as different, as different serotypes. Um, and these serotypes um, can infect you despite the infection you had with a prior, uh, before that with a different serotype. So you can have a second infection with a different serotype. And, um, and now these antibodies that are in your blood from your first infection, again, bind to the new dengue virus infecting you at the moment. But instead of neutralizing the virus, they form a complex. So you have a virus antibody complex, but it's not killed. It's just floating around. And now there are many cells, like monocytes, that are normally poorly susceptible to dengue virus. But this antibody virus complex can bind to receptors on these cells like monocytes and can be taken up. So the virus entry is actually facilitated by these not or non-neutralizing antibodies. And then you have more virus and the virus is transported around in your body um, in, a, in, in a facilitated fashion and you get a more severe infection. So this is the general principle. Of course, we now know that it's probably more, a little more complex than this because we see that, for example, it depends on the amount of antibodies you have. So low antibody titers may be uh, a particularly interesting and relevant risk factor for you to have a severe secondary dengue infection compared to very high titers that may then rather be protective. So it's definitely complex and there's a lot of work to do, but in, but in principle, we now know that this is definitely happening in dengue. Well, that is complicated and um, seemingly horrifying, frankly. Um, <laughs> Uh, during the outbreak, the number of birth defects caused by Zika was highest in northeastern Brazil. Some scientists theorize that this might have to do with dengue prevalence in that area. Why would they think that? Well, this is one of the biggest enigmas, I would say, uh, of the Zika outbreak, of the Latin American Zika outbreak, is why we have this, this, this incidence of Zika-associated microcephaly cases in northeastern Brazil, which re reported like 95% of all cases of, of microcephaly from that outbreak. So the question is, why is this, why is this regionally happening so much? Is it that no other region in Latin America has seen the same magnitude of Zika infections? Some people think that, and um, but there is n there's not there's, that 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 hypothesis is not supported by by very solid evidence. But we cannot refute it completely. And others have hypothesized that there may be effect modifiers. So that this population living in northeastern Brazil, may, there may be a component that aggravates Zika infection. And many effect modifiers have been discussed. So people were discussing whether vaccination history would make a difference. For example, if you had a yellow fever shot or not, whether it would protect you or, 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 or increase the risk for you to have a congenital Zika syndrome if you were a pregnant woman. Um, and others have thought that this is because of toxins that northeastern Brazilian people who... This, you have to know that this is a, poor, a relatively poor area of Brazil, right? So it's, the resources are limited. And in some slum areas, people don't have access to, to running water. And so they have to store water in, in large plastic tanks 
and and to prevent these these water supplies from getting full of um, yeah insects, they use some toxins. They add toxins to the water so that it stays clear. And then people hypothesize that these toxins may actually be causing the the syndrome that people were seeing instead of the Zika infection or in addition or as a component of Zika infection. Mm. But most of these effect modifiers have been ruled out in case cohort studies. And the one thing that was remaining is is um, the question on dengue. Because as I said um, to your earlier question that you can have a more severe secondary dengue infection than your first dengue infection. So people have thought, well, maybe if you have dengue antibodies, they can enhance Zika infection, right? In the same way that they would enhance a secondary dengue infection. And indeed, one has to say that the data that came out in the early years of the outbreak, so 2016 mostly, were fully supportive of this. There was an incredibly strong amount of data raised in vitro, so in cell culture or on placental tissues that was showing that in the presence of dengue antibodies, you had a much more intense Zika virus infection. So it all made sense in, in many ways. And this, was, um, and this was a clear call for further epidemiological studies because at some time point, you have to go for, for epidemiological investigation. You can't resolve everything in vitro. The data from the animal models was contradictory in, 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 in many ways. For example, you, you could confirm the, the enhancement of Zika virus infection by dengue immunity in some mouse models, but not in non-human primate models. So, as I said, it, it got complex, and we needed epidemiological studies like ours. Okay, so what, what was the goal of your study? Yeah, so we looked precisely at that. We wanted to know if if northeastern Brazil had seen different dengue viruses in the past, because hypothetically you could argue, so why northeastern Brazil only? You could say, well, maybe northeastern Brazil saw different dengue viruses than, let's say, Rio de Janeiro or Sao Paulo, right, which are more to the south. And um, there, there, so we wanted to find out about dengue infection histories in northeastern Brazil in that city that I was mentioning earlier in Salvador. Okay, so tell us about this study. Who was involved? When did it take place? And what were your methods? We, well, we, we first of all, we did a case cohort design. So this means that we enrolled women who were giving birth during the epitome of the, of the outbreak, 2015-16, and we, we offered them to participate in our study, and uh, virtually every single woman delivery, uh, giving birth in, in the university hospital's maternity wards in Salvador was happy to be enrolled to, to participate in the study because everybody was so scared and people were happy to get additional support from, from that study. So we enrolled the mothers, and then we followed them up. And some of the mothers gave birth to a child with um, an, a neurological problem, like macrocephaly, and other babies were apparently healthy. And we, did, we followed them up a bit as well, a few more months, so that we could know if, something, if everything was going fine in the first few months after birth. These are, these are the patients, the study participants. And, um, and then in the lab, we, so we took blood from those mothers at delivery, and we tested it for antibodies against all four dengue viruses so that we could find out if they had been infected with dengue and, if so, with which serotype. 
Dengue has four serotypes, and we, want, we tested all four of them. And finally, we um, checked all the dengue genomes that are in public databases and sorted them by their origin so that we could say, okay, this is a dengue virus that has, has been obtained from somebody in northeastern Brazil or in any other region of Brazil. And eventually, we did some mathematical modeling to quantify um, the, 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 the impact of some of the variables we have had been studying on, on the development of uh, a congenital Zika syndrome. So this is pretty much our study design. And, and you had some pretty striking results. What were they? You were pretty surprised, right? <laughs> yeah, you could say so. I mean, basically, the opposite of what we thought would be true came out. Um, so what our data showed is that instead of dengue infection increasing the risk of a mother's baby to have Zika-associated problems, it protected against it. So what we saw is that, strikingly, the cases, so the cases are the mothers whose babies had problems. And, and these people had seen less dengue infections than the controls. So dengue was much more frequent in the, in the, in the lives of, the, of, of those mothers whose babies were healthy than in the cases. And this was pretty striking and alerting at the same time. And I have to say that I was extremely pleased that um, our data were completely consistent with two important studies that came out round about the same time as our article in EID um, from Albert Coe's group in Yale and Eva Harris' group in Berkeley, um, who were investigating other populations and found similar things. So we, uh, I think that the picture is now pretty consistent, I'd say. And what's the explanation for this? Well, I'm, I will have to hypothesize. Um, what we are seeing here is probably, again, a complex pattern where probably what is happening is if you have dengue over and over and over and recently, then your immune response against dengue virus is very strong. And probably this strong immune response is rather protective than enhancing. And in comparison, if you had dengue maybe just once and it's 10 years ago or 20 years ago, then maybe your immune responses against that past infection are so weak that they, that they do not protect you anymore. And, and, and I, I think, because we investigated whether the magnitude of the antibody titers would make a difference and it did not. So what I think is what is probably happening is that, um, that you see a strong component of cellular immune responses that protect the baby of, of, of those mothers that, are in fa that got infected by dengue before. And um, the, it's, it's not easy for a pathogen to cross the placental barrier, right? So the, all, of the, all of the contact, uh, all of the blood that is um, circulating to the fetus it has to cross the placenta. And the, the placental barrier, the, 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 the maternal side of the placenta, is full of T-cells that, that are exactly there to protect the fetus from, from path, for example, among other things, from pathogens infecting the mother during pregnancy. And probably if, if these women had been infected repeatedly by dengue viruses, then probably these, these T-cells were so active, they were so activated, there was, there was such a strong cellular immune response at the placental level that it protected the fetuses of those women. That's, that's my best guess, at least. That's really interesting, especially since dengue doesn't protect against itself. Well, against the same serotype, right? Yeah. 
Some people noticed that there were very little dengue infection going on at the time of the Zika outbreak. Uh, is this related? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it, I, I guess it is. I'm, again, the data are not so solid, but what, what may be happening is that this is a two-sided process. So, um, so at the same time that dengue may protect or may induce cross-protection against Zika, Zika, in turn, may cross-protect against dengue. Because hypothetically, we can assume that, as I said, 60-70% of people, at least in some areas of Latin America, got infected quite fast, right? So these people were so full of Zika-induced immunity that probably it's, the, the other flaviviruses like dengue uh, probably didn't stand a chance to, to actually replicate, infect those people. So this is what we can assume. But uh, we, definitely, we, we probably need more data, epidemiological data, to really have solid data proving this. Can these findings um, be used to protect people? Oh, certainly. Um, it, maybe not on the short run, but this whole game of having cross-protection on the one end, but enhancement on the other hand, right? So that a, a prior flavivirus infection can protect you, or it can make you more sick in a secondary flavivirus infection. So the more we understand that, the better we can uh, design our vaccine strategies. Um, you know that there is a dengue vaccine now and that it's being used in, in, in several countries, including Brazil and the Philippines, and that we had a lot of problems over the last, well, two years or so in that um, exactly in the, in the context of enhancement that we, that we are discussing today, it was observed that people who had never seen dengue got, got a dengue shot and then got the, the real dengue infection were actually at more, were at higher risk to be to have severe disease than than those people that got infected that had already seen dengue before, right? So it's the same game of cross protection versus enhancement. It's really exactly the same thing, and we need to understand the flaviviral immune interplay much better so that we can design safe vaccines, mm. which we clearly need to do. I mean, um, the the whole dengue vaccine. Uh, uproar has really had a massive impact on on on, vaccine, on on how people perceive vaccines, and we need vaccines. We definitely need vaccines. We need dengue vaccines, but we need safe vaccines that people actually accept and that um, and that do not cause immune enhancement. Because I, I'm not sure if you've seen that the, the the data from the Philippines, for example, is is quite dramatic in that um, people were so unhappy with what they thought would be a safe vaccine that they stopped taking all vaccines, or many, and they are now, they just recently had the, the largest measles virus outbreak um, in, in, in a long time, and that's not good. We need to understand this, this interplay, this immune interplay, so that we can produce vaccines that are safe and that people are happy in taking, so we can protect them. Yes, this is very unfortunate in this whole climate of vaccine fear to have, um, have this happen. Yeah, exactly. No, we clearly, I mean, we need we need vaccines and we need good vaccines and we need to have people believe that these vaccines are actually really protecting them and and this is exactly and flavivirus is that's not an easy topic you don't just make an easy easily make a flavivirus vaccine exactly because of the context of what we are discussing today right but i do want to take a moment here to reaffirm that that this was a rare exception, that most vaccines are very safe and people do need to be taking them, right? Absolutely. No, I completely agree. It's, it's very unfortunate that 
people who actually don't really understand vaccines and vaccinology make expressions that they shouldn't be doing and, and raising fears. Vaccines are the single most effective solution. Uh, I mean, nothing has saved more lives than vaccines. I, I, I mean, vaccines are, the, like, together with antibiotics, and anti, it's, it's the thing that has saved us in, in, uh, in the last decades or 100 years. And um, we do need vaccines, and we need people to take vaccines and, and understand the benefit that they, they all bring. And they are really quite safe. And as you say, the dengue, the dengue vaccination um, story is very recent and very, a very rare exception. And pe a lot of people are working to actually um, find better ways to, to apply these vaccines. I'm not saying, I apologize if I was not clear, I'm not saying that the, the dengue vaccine is not to be taken. It's just that we need to have better ways to make it safe and to know whom we should be giving it to, right? Right. Should we be worried about Zika making a comeback? I understand the herd immunity um, protected that whole region rather quickly, but um, can it sneak into other areas that don't have such an overwhelming um, reaction and sort of start up again? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the extent of Zika spread all across Latin America is unknown. We know it for some areas, but not for many. So hypothetically, it probably can come back in many of these areas, and we simply don't know. So this is one thing. But at the same time, of course, I don't want to raise um, unwarranted fears about Zika is lurking around the corner. I'm not saying that. It's just that it could re-emerge. That's one thing. And at the same time, Zika is an arbovirus, right? So it's transmitted by the bite of an arthropod, a mosquito. And um, usually these viruses, which we call arthropod-borne viruses, or in short, arboviruses, mm, in fact, they can infect other vertebrates than humans as well, uh, say in the jungle or, uh, you know, like monkeys or maybe other animals. So we can talk about animal reservoirs. It may reside in the mosquito per se. It may be in, in sustained in, it may be circulating amongst non-human primates such as monkeys. And we simply don't know at all. And the point is, if Zika, if Zika virus made it into what we call a sylvatic cycle, in Latin America, then it may simply never go away. Mm -hmm. And it's what we have seen. There's other arboviruses like chikungunya virus and um, dengue virus itself, which used to be a sylvatic virus before it made its way out of the jungle to just be sustained among people. Chikungunya, for example, is a good example, which just stays somewhere in the bush. We don't really know in which animals. And it reemerges once the pool of susceptible human individuals has replenished either because people are migrating or because simply enough, enough babies are born who are immunologically naive, so they are susceptible to the virus and the virus, as soon as it has a, a population that is big enough to sustain it, and it is introduced. So, of course, you have a stochastic element here, right? You have to, you have to be, the virus has to be lucky enough to get into that population, like Zika into Latin America. And as soon as that happens, it may all begin again, but we simply don't know if Zika virus made it into a sylvatic cycle. So we need, we need to know that. And what we, finally, what we have also seen is that we have seen that those countries that maintain close inter commercial interactions with Latin American countries, such as Angola and Cape Verde, um, who are Portuguese-speaking countries, such as Brazil, like Brazil, and um, we have seen Brazilian-type Zika infecting people now in Africa. 
and Zika used to, this is, this is actually uh, really interesting because Zika virus is an African virus, right? <laughs> Zika is named after a forest that is in Uganda, the Zika forest. And, and it made its way out of Africa over all, all these years and now is coming back to Africa in a form uh, that caused the outbreak in Latin America. And we don't know at all what, they may, what that may cause. We really have no clue. So what's the best way for our listeners to protect themselves from Zika or any other mosquito-borne diseases? Don't get bitten. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, use repellents, um, you know, long sleeves, and, and that's really the basics. Don't get bitten. And then we've talked about vaccines. If we are talking about a flavivirus that, for which a, a good vaccine exists, such as yellow fever virus, or tick-borne encephalitis virus in Europe, take the vaccine. Brazil has seen the largest yellow fever outbreak in decades uh, immediately after Zika. And it's such a great vaccine. It's an old vaccine. The yellow fever vaccine is an established vaccine, but it's extremely efficient and it protects people from a disease that otherwise kills almost one in two that are infected. So don't get bitten. Use vaccines where possible. Okay. All right. So tell us about your job and how you became interested in this subject. Well, I'm an MD, and after med school, I worked in Brazil for almost 10 years. And I was seeing patients in a tropical medicine unit, and I was interested to, 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 to also do research into these infections. And um, so I started a scientific career and went back and forth to different institutes in different countries. And uh, still working in Brazil, we, I, I really enjoyed developing new tools to diagnose those infections in a setting like Brazil, where you know you don't, you can't just do everything you want because the resources are somehow limited. And we 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 developed new tools to diagnose uh, HIV, hepatitis C virus, yellow fever virus, and 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 I'm very pleased still that this has, some of these tools have made their way into into public health laboratories in Brazil, for example, and they're actually being used. So this is really great, and um, so I, I got interested, and I still am interested because I think it's a it's a great way to um, to do this to do research that really helps people um, deal with these emerging infections. Are you are you from Germany originally? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was born here. Okay, in Berlin. <laughs> no, in Frankfurt. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Drexler. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you, my listeners, for joining us as well. You can read the full August 2019 article, Cross-Protection of Dengue Virus Infection Against Congenital Zika Syndrome, Northeastern Brazil, online at cdc.gov eid. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.